This week on the show, we tell you about writing FreeBSD kernel modules in Rust, the details behind the FreeBSD AIO exploit, or the patch for it, Linux subsystem for FreeBSD, the FreeBSD journal article about, or not article, science systems and FreeBSD whole issue about them, NetBSD improves Amiga support, OpenBSD on the Scaleway Elastic Metal, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 473, Rusty Kernel Modules, recorded on September 1st, 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show or want to remove ads like this one, uh, go to Patreon page. This is patreon.com slash bsdnow, where you have various ways to support this episode or others like this. Hello, we are your hosts, Benedict Reuschling. And Alan Jude. Yep, that's us. And we brought you the latest and greatest, that's up for you to decide, headlines and news from the BSD world. The first one is writing FreeBSD kernel modules in Rust. Yeah, uh, so this one's over from the NCC group, which is a vulnerability research company. And say, uh, at present, all major operating system kernels are written in C or C++, languages which provide only minimal assistance in avoiding common security problems. Modern languages, such as Rust, provide better security guarantees by default and prevent many of the common classes of memory safety security bugs. In this post, we'll take a brief look at the existing community efforts towards this goal and build a basic Hello World proof of concept kernel module for FreeBSD. It's generally accepted that a large portion of, of security issues in complex software stem from memory safety problems. A well-known post from Microsoft attributes approximately 70% of vulnerabilities in their products to these memory safety issues. And that same 70% figure comes up uh, in the Chromium group's research into the root cause of high and critical security bugs in the browser engine. So enter Rust, the programming language. Rust empowers everyone to build reliable and efficient software. It achieves this goal primarily by bringing as much error checking and validation as possible forward to compilation time rather than runtime. Additionally, for operations that may fail due to external factors, its robust mechanism for handling runtime errors ensure that the application won't enter unexpected states. Uh, as an example of this type of support that REST provides, consider memory management. In traditional languages, it is expected that the programmer will correctly handle all aspects of memory management lifecycle. That is, ensure that the size of an allocation requested uh, from the malloc function is correct accounting for off by one errors for mishandling the null byte at the end of a string. Ensure that the allocation was successful, not just assuming so, uh, which is not usually a concern in user space code. However, the kernel and embedded code uh, should safely handle allocation failures. For library functions, in the absence of a compiler enforced uh, contract around memory ownership, ensure that memory management obligations are clearly documented and implemented according to avoid use after free or double free issues. You know, when you call into a library and it's going to allocate some memory, if it's your job to free it, you have to know that and do it. But if it's going to free it, but you assumed you had to do it, then you end up with a double free. Or um, also if the, the function is going to do it uh, and you freed it, it then tries to use it before it frees it and you have a use that free and things crash. 
It's also your responsibility uh, to check if two threads are accessing a shared area of memory, ensure that they do not try to write to it at the same time, and that any read, modify, write sequences are done consistently. You want to ensure that all allocations get freed, but only once. Um, and after an allocation has been freed, ensure that no function attempts to use that freed memory. So you want to you know, null out all those pointers and not keep them around. Rust prevents these uh, types of bugs at compile time by strictly tracking memory, uh, memory ownership and lifetimes automatically. For example, if a function accepts a reference to an object, then that object will not be freed until the function has returned, preventing a use after free vulnerability. Similarly, if a function takes ownership of an object that only that function will be able to free it, and it's no longer available in the calling context, preventing double free vulnerabilities. In addition, safe Rust prevents out-of-bound memory access at runtime either by panicking or with methods that return, you know, option none when given out of bounds index. But there are some special modes like uh, no standard and global alloc. When developing for embedded systems or kernels, we can't generally rely on the system giving us access to the heap memory allocator, often because embedded systems typically have limited memory capacity and don't generally have, you know, separate heap space. To account for this, the core standard library is split into two components core and alloc. The core crate contains all the shared library functions that don't rely on an allocator, and the alloc uh, crate provides functions that do rely on heap memory. By default, the standard library uses the operating system's default allocator. So in glibc, that'd be malloc, and same on FreeBSD, where it'd be je malloc, and so on. After telling the compiler that you don't want to use Rust's standard library by putting the no underscore std annotation in your code, we may indicate that we wish to use a specific allocator. This is where the global alloc trait comes in. In order to use the alloc crate, we must provide an implementation of global alloc and register it with the global allocator attribute. For example, on an embedded system, we may wish to write a custom allocator to hand out sections of the SRAM chip. Or in an operating system, we may need to allow programs to request blocks of memory. So for kernel modules, uh, Linux and BSD kernels provide a special allocator, kmalloc. So our implementation can be relatively simple wrapper around that system library call. For example, we use the following code to tell Rust how to use FreeBSD's kernel memory allocator, um, where kernel underscore sys is a wrapper library around those kernel headers. So we can define a new global alloc function that will create alloc and dealloc functions that basically call the FreeBSD kernel memory allocator uh, and define how that works so Rust can compile and, and be happy. So they must also provide an alloc error handler function, which is called on allocation failure and is usually used to halt or reboot the system or panic. Note that the return type of this function is an exclamation mark, uh, which is the never type, indicating that this function will never return because it's panicked, right? This isn't always useful behavior, and the ability to handle allocation failures is important for several contexts. For example, a kernel, or embedded, or garbage collection runtimes, or databases, or whatever. Um, there has to be a lot of work towards support for this failable allocation, now collected in the allocator working group, and several types of experimental try underscore reserve methods that return an error on allocation failure instead of calling the global error handler. Uh, so we talk about using the nightly version of Rust to get access to some of this new stuff. And they talk a little bit about uh, Linux and the uh, fish in a barrel project, which is trying to make a, a Linux kernel in Rust. But then they get back to FreeBSD. 
For FreeUSD, there doesn't seem to be an active work uh, in the space of getting rest in the kernel, with the main prior work being that of Johannes Lundberg's example in master's thesis from 2017 2018, uh, and some follow-up work uh, by Anatole Ulrich. Uh, as the Rust language has evolved since Lundberg's early work, a bit of effort is required to bring up to date and ready to compile uh, that example code. As a proof of concept, we produced uh, fresh bindings to the FreeBSD kernel headers with BindGen, which is one of the tools from uh, Johannes's repo. I think, uh, no, this is upstream, never mind. Uh, upstream tool and separated out the echo code into a safe wrapper crate around the bindings and the driver itself. Uh, there's too much code to reasonably include directly in the blog post, so we put it up on GitHub. The kernel syscrate uh, contains the bindings for the kernel headers, uh, like wrapper.h, uh, that we'll need to build modules, and the bsd-kernel crate contains the safe abstraction layer, and then module-hello is our example kernel module. The abstractions used here are not as advanced as those uh, for Linux kernel modules, so the process involves uh, building a Rust library that exports the relevant symbols and then statically linking it to a C program uh, that calls the module initialization routine. So the module itself just has to declare itself and handle some events. Uh, if you've ever looked at the C examples for building a FreeBSD kernel module, it's very similar. So uh, they declare an enum of the module event types, module load, unload, shutdown, and quiesce. Um, and then they implement the module event type. Uh, and then based on which type happens, they basically have a, a match, which is kind of like a switch case. And they call load, unload, shutdown, or quiesce uh, based on that. Then they can make their function that will do a little bit of something for each of these things. Uh, and then they make uh, their module called hello, which runs the module event handler and does something. And they get it all set up so that they can make a character device, which you can open, close, read, and write from, uh, get it all set up. And then once you have the character device implemented, you can compile it, load it up. And then if you cat slash dev, dev slash Rust module, it will output hello world. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, so uh, all the examples there in the post and in their linked GitHub. So in this post, we've shown it's possible to write a simple kernel module for FreeBSD in Rust. Uh, more complete integration of Rust into existing operating system kernels is going to take a lot of time and effort, um, but that effort is progressing relatively quickly. The loadable kernel module interface is a good starting point for this work because it's relatively isolated from the core kernel code. It is on the boundary where external actors may interact with the kernel. Rust safety guarantees are an excellent match for the security boundary. And that's what Johannes's original work was, was built the framework, but he also rewrote uh, one of the Intel Ethernet drivers in Rust. Uh, so that entire driver is written in Rust and is a loadable module and didn't require changing anything in FreeBSD to be able to do that. And that was very interesting. Mm. So they say, in the future, we may start to see experimental rewrites of individual components of the kernel into Rust bringing stronger security guarantees kind of one module at a time. And I think that's much more likely to succeed than trying to just, oh, we're going to rewrite the whole kernel from scratch. If we can do one module at a time uh, and get individual things uh, converted, then we can just, you know, take one step at a time and it'll be uh, much more likely to succeed. Uh, so some further topics that will help progress things, uh, you know, build a larger set of abstractions to, uh, for FreeBSD to make it easier to write kernel modules. 
improve those abstractions used to make sure they are less leaky, uh, like remove the requirement to store the CDEV object in a struct implementing de uh, character device. Uh, they'd also like to see the same thing happen for a Lumos and to design a set of abstractions for common behavior that's the same across Linux, BSD, and Lumos uh, so that you know we don't have to maintain different versions of almost the same thing for all three operating systems. Uh, and then implement something useful like a driver for an SPI device or an interface layer uh, like embedded HAL uh, in Rust and then have that same driver be usable on all three operating systems. Oh yeah, that would be good. All right, then next up we have details behind the FreeBSD AIO LPE. So this is a very detailed blog post. Don't get me wrong, this is going so deep. It's definitely, yeah, at the bottom of the water. <laughs> but if uh, you saw the uh, security advisory uh, 22 colon 10 in FreeBSD, mm -hmm. uh, which came out, what was that, in like uh, early August? Uh, and he says, you know, so AIO is the subsystem that implements asynchronous IO. So normally when you do a read or a write in C, you call read and the function does some work and returns once it's done. Uh, with the asynchronous one, you can uh, basically do the read and say, call this function when, when you're done. It means you could submit multiple reads and then they could finish out of order and then tell you when they're done. Yeah, you can do something uh, so in the meantime. More, more IO happening at once. Mm -hmm. The problem description says that the uh, AIO AQ function used uh, by the listIO system call to add work to the queue fails to release a reference to the credentials of the user if there's an error. Uh, so it keeps around a reference to this memory, causing it not to get freed. An attacker can cause the reference count to overflow, um, leading to a use after free error, uh, which eventually could cause. Uh, the local privilege escalation, as pointed out in this article. Mm -hmm. So this article kind of walks through how that happened. Uh, so the vulnerability was present in FreeBSD's version 11.0 through to 13.0 before the fix. Um, this article describes the vulnerability and lays out the an exploitation strategy to actually go from just uh, a proof of concept to actually escalating from a normal user to root on the system. Uh, they also found that the part of this was not backported to the stable 12 branch properly, but they got fixed once they reported it. And it's all there. But yeah, so their FreeBSD supports asynchronous IO through a set of functions like AIO read, write, fsync, and so on. Uh, once you submit jobs, they can be queried or canceled through syscalls like AIO wait complete or AIO return or cancel. Uh, so when userland submits these AIO jobs, they pass the IO control block in. Uh, this structure describes which file descriptor to perform the operation on, a pointer to the userland buffer to read or write it, the data to, and the number of bytes to do, and so on. Although there are a few different syscalls depending on what you're asking the kernel to do, when it comes to queuing the job, all these end up going through the AIO AQ, so adding something to the queue. Uh, that function's job is to copy the control block, do some validation, resolve some resources, like translate the file descriptor into the struct file rather than just a, an int. Um, for a discussion, they have an example of the code here. Uh, but basically, the problem is that it uh, doesn't drop uh, the reference it adds to the credentials. Uh, so notice that the error path here does not balance the reference count for the user credentials taken on annotation number four. There. 
by triggering this error path, the ref count of the calling thread's credentials will be incremented by one each time. We're supposed to be incremented and then decremented once there's an error because the error case wasn't decrementing. You can just keep doing that until you overflow it. And then next time you touch it and you go up one and it ends up back at zero, then the kernel's like, oh, we're not using that anymore. Let me free that. And then uh, when you have a use after free, you can cause unhappy things to happen in the system. <laughs> Uh, so they like to say, these reference count bugs are not always exploitable. We need to make sure that the reference count increment is not checked for an overflow, that it's feasible to cause the reference to overflow within a reasonable amount of time, uh, which could be interesting. You know, if it is a 64-bit number, then it would take a long time to increment that one at a time to, you know, 18 billion, 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 or whatever uh, 64 bits will hold. Uh, we want to make sure that we can leverage the overflow to actually cause a premature free and that we have enough flexibility over the heap to allocate a useful object in its place, and then we can uh, do something useful with that reallocation. So they walk through it and look at how uh, once the ref count release returns true at annotation number one, we enter the branch which allows the credentials to be freed. How can we reliably have this credential free call on our target user credential? The AIO syscall can help us there. Rather than thinking about the vulnerable error path, consider what happens on the success path. The user's UCRED is held with CR hold and attached to the job. The job is then enqueued for processing, but it doesn't live forever. It has a legitimate cleanup function called AIO free entry that will free uh, that reference. Uh, so once we reach that free entry code uh, by either calling wait complete or return, uh, We'll wait for any in-flight jobs to complete, and while AIO return, we'll return the results of a specific job. Uh, so option one here is find a method that allows us to test if the object was uh, affected uh, that we're affecting has been freed. So each time uh, we call CR free, use the Oracle to tell us if we've hit the condition. Or number two, find some way of knowing what the current reference count of that credential is. And they walk through how they did that, and basically, they were able to put uh, a different value in. So once the system freed the memory, they were able to fill that slot with uh, a different credential. And then uh, when the use after free happened and something tried to read that pointer, it would now have the wrong credentials and bad things would happen. <laughs> but yeah, it goes into all the details. So if you're interested in how that works, it's all spelled out there. Yeah, so definitely Big shout out for that bug reporting it. And they also at the beginning described the interaction they had with the security team, which was quite good in reacting. And uh, they also would like to thank Philip Pops. I hope it's proper pronunciation of his name uh, from the security team for responding swiftly and keeping him updated on progress. So that's already uh, good to know. Quite good, and we are now in the news roundup this week. We have found the Linux subsystem for FreeBSD. Yes, that thing exists, according to this article here. Uh, so this is running FreeBSD on Linux. So yeah, similar to how FreeBSD has the Linux elator to be able to run Linux binaries, somebody thought, why don't we do it the other way around? Mm -hmm. So FreeBSD has been supporting Linux emulation for a long time and even able to run Linux containers but this wasn't vice versa so far. 
As a proof of concept, they implemented Linux subsystem for FreeBSD uh, with LSF to emulate FreeBSD on Linux. So the demo here builds a Docker container and runs that. So that's nothing special yet. But if you run file on binsh, you get, well, binsh getting version one, FreeBSD, dynamically linked and so on. So this is unusual on a, FreeB uh, on a Linux box. And also uname tells you that it's FreeBSD, 13.1 release, patch level one. So what's going on there? Lots of syscalls are still unimplemented, but basic commands such as sh, ls, and uname seem to kinda work. And how does it work? Well, first there are executable pages. Surprisingly, the Linux kernel does not validate the OSABI of the ELF binaries on execve. So LSF can just load ELF OSABI underscore FreeBSD binaries without cooking up the prod underscore exec pages by itself. Then there's syscall trapping. Syscalls are trapped using the plain old ptrace underscore syscall. Unlike UML, the user mode Linux, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, uh, the ptrace underscore sysemu, which reduces the ptrace overhead when the trapped syscall rarely needs to be executed, is not used. Because in the case of LSF, most syscalls can be just passed through to the Linux kernel, but with different register values, such as the syscall number in the RAX register. Yeah, so they found that most of the time, uh, for the basic syscalls that are the same between FreeBSD and Linux, all they have to do is modify the syscall number to be the, the Linux number instead of the FreeBSD number, and hmm, magic, uh, that just works. <laughs> yeah. You know, some of the basic things like read and write and so on that are, you know, POSIX defined or whatever, and, and the arguments are exactly the same the whole time, doesn't require anything really other than changing that syscall number. Hmm. And they talk about how, where that came from with the System 5 ABI, kind of like we were talking about in the last episode with the... The differences between those uh, elf binaries on Linux and the the problem with glibc. Uh, so yeah, they talk about that, and then then they get into the more complicated case. For example, fstat, which is different because uh, I think on Linux they went to fstat sixty four to support sixty four bit files uh, or sixty four bit systems, whereas FreeBSD just stuck with the same fstat binary. Or uh, syscall? Uh, where is that? Syscall handlers. Ah, uh, those can't be just passed through by changing the register values when the corresponding syscall is missing in Linux, or the syscall has an incompatible argument, such as the struct with different struct members, like fstat, which takes in file descriptor and a buffer. In such a case, LSF rewrites the syscall number in the RAX register to a no operation syscall number uh, with get PID and handles the original syscall arguments in the user space when the no op syscall exits. The user space handler uses pit fd underscore get fd file descriptor to fetch the file descriptor, translates the struct definitions and calls Linux syscalls to emulate the requested FreeBSD syscall. All right. Then there's something about thread local storages. FreeBSD processes expect the TLS pointer fsbase to be initialized by the kernel, while the Linux kernel does not provide it. LSF uses ptrace underscore peak text to inject syscall instruction 0f05 into the code of the FreeBSD process for allocating the TLS with break. And after single stepping the syscall instruction, LSF restores the code and rewinds the instruction pointer to the original position. The TLS is initialized with the .t data and .tbss section of the ELF. At the ends of the TLS, there is the TLS pointer that points to itself and the FSBase register is set to this pointer. And then they talk a little bit about the initial registers that are different between Linux and FreeBSD and modified using ptrace underscore set registers. 
but the stack layout is fairly similar. The stack begins with argument counter, argument vector, environment pointer, and aux vector, I guess. But aux v is slightly incompatible across Linux and FreeBSD. Yeah, that aux v one, I ran into that with OpenSSL and had to submit a patch upstream to OpenSSL to fix its detection of certain capabilities when running on ARM. Oh. Because the same capability has a different number on FreeBSD and it was just misaligned. Oh, okay. So it wouldn't wouldn't work or run. So it was not detecting that the CPU supported the speed up feature. Okay. So at the bottom, they say what's next. It's probably possible to apply the same techniques to emulate other Unix-like operating systems on Linux. It might be fun to emulate recent alternative operating systems such as Serenity and Redux on Linux. Feel free to submit pull requests if somebody is interested in and to completely um, yeah, paint the picture. It might be also possible to emulate non-Unix-like operating systems such as Fuxia at Zircon, but that might be more challenging. And of course, they're hiring. If you're interested in this sort of work, uh, check out their website. It's in Japanese, so be warned. But yeah. Well, NTT is... <laughs> The uh, Japanese company, I guess. It's the yeah, the Japanese telephone company. Mm. Oh yeah, NTT Docomo, isn't that it? Could be, yeah. Well, this is their R and D lab. Or their so yeah. R D NTT research. I didn't know that NTT went and bought the whole top level domain <laughs> NTT. That's awesome. Yeah, because why not? Um <laughs> Okay, uh, next up we have also interesting news from FreeBSD Journal. There's a new issue out about science, systems, and FreeBSD. Yeah, I was a bit involved in that, writing an article. So what's in there? They have an article about building the Loom framework on FreeBSD. My article about teaching an undergraduate Unix course for a couple of years now, getting started with FreeBSD workshop, and a pragmatic IPv6, which is part of a series of articles by uh, Hiroki Sato-san. And this is part two. The previous one is in the previous article or issue. All of these issues are free if you, people are still wondering. So you can just get them on the FreeBSD Journal webpage. And another one is advocating for FreeBSD in 2022 and beyond, which is from the foundation directly. Very nice. So check out the article and the issue for some interesting content there. Then, of course, the old people who are even older than us are um, remembering these systems. NetBSD has improved its support of for the Commodore Amiga. That's been around for a while, but not too much recently. Uh, but here, this article tells us that it has definitely improved its cross-platform support or being cross-platform even more than NetBSD already is, uh, because now it improves its support for the Commodore Amiga and they provide the year 1985. So just as a reference where we are. So they say NetBSD is a BSD type. I was uh, still a baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not much interested in, in computers back then. Um, yeah, it's a BSD type operating system, in turn belonging to the Unix family, which is a stepbrother of macOS and the first cousin of Linux. Oh, wow. Uh, the release of its version 10.0 is expected to take place relatively soon, but for now, its managers have decided to publish a minor update version 9.3. And some of the novelties of this new version, uh, they certainly don't sound very exciting, but apparently they are for the Amiga folks. Support for UDF file systems built in Windows 10, improved support for Intel Gigabit Ethernet chipsets, better support for newer Intel, and AMD Zen 3 chipsets, support for WSFB-based X11 servers on the Commodore Amiga, and so on and so on. Wait, you noticed that too, right? Yep, if it exists, it works with NetBSD. 
they say. The Commodore Amiga is a 16-bit computer released in 1985, and for several years it was able to stand up to Apple Macs and IBM PCs with MS-DOS thanks to its advanced operating system, the Amiga OS, equipped with rear, uh, rear, real or preemptive multitasking. It didn't give up on the home computing market until 1994, just a few months before the release of Windows 95. And yet the Amiga maintains a dwindling but enthusiastic fan base among retro computing enthusiasts. One of colleagues of mine is actually one of those people. And so the excitement is definitely there. Not sure if he's using NetBSD, but maybe he will after I tell him about this or he listens to this episode. Yeah, it's uh, amusing to see. So, you know, actually getting X11 running on it. So. Uh, uh, because it's running NetBSD, of course. And so they uh, walk us a little bit how they do that or what's involved there. And even show us. But yeah, yeah. if you're interested in me, go check it out. Yeah, <laughs> we leave you at that. And uh, then we found installing OpenBSD on Scaleway Elastic Metal. Have you heard about this before this article? I didn't. That this and uh, hardware exists at all. So Scaleway is a hosting provider. Oh, uh, and so this oh is now their, I get it. It's not a hardware company. Uh, it's basically a web yeah. host. Okay. Yeah, it's a web host. So it's basically offering uh, rented servers that you can grow and shrink. Mm. Oh, yeah, because Elastic, yeah. Okay. That's, yeah, that's so say, uh, <laughs> this post is a longer version of originally what was a Mastodon thread, but they say they like Scaleway because they host in Europe and they provide a good mix of services from Elastic Metal to cloud instances and serverless functions. So what is Elastic Metal? Since uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Explain uh, me. It's a fancy name for what's often called bare metal servers. Scaleway provides some elastic features around these servers, such as elastic IP addresses and so on. What I think is great about this offering is that you get pretty much full access to the out-of-band management software. Having access to a remote console makes installing OpenBSD or whatever OS you want possible. It also means doing more complicated things like using disk encryption and setting that up where you need to redo the install. Much easier when you have access to the out-of-band management rather than having to you know, use the images they provide or upload your already built image and so on. Or even you know, if you're going to go so far as to use uh, um, OpenBSD's software aid with encryption, you're going to need to use the out-of-band management after a reboot to type in the password to, to complete boot. So then they talk about why bare metal? Uh, because compared to, the, uh, compared to the cloud, bare metal is more metal. <laughs> but also while cloud provides uh, many operational benefits, the feature premium is often high. If all you need is a simple Unix server, you probably get more computation power for your money with the bare metal than uh, you know, getting a fraction of a big machine as the cloud. So uh, they want to install OpenBSD, and they're thankful that they can do that themselves, uh, or NetBSD or FreeBSD or whatever they want, uh, by just using the out-of-band management console. So first, you go and order your Elastic Metal server uh, from Scaleway. That might take a couple hours for them to deliver it. You know, they uh, grabbed a server in the aluminum range, which gave them six cores and 12 threads, uh, but whatever they do. They boot it into the rescue mode, where they can just SSH into uh, a rescue console. Then they wrote the installer uh, for OpenBSD to the disk, uh, and then booted that back into normal mode and accessed the remote console so that they would be presented with the OpenBSD installer. Then they set up their RAID on their disks, uh, just like you would if it was a machine sitting in front of you, just typing this into um, in this case, the HP ILO console of the, the machine you're renting. Then you can run the installer, go through the OpenBSD installed as you normally would, 
boot up your system. Uh, and now, you know, once it has this IP address, you can just SSH in as normal. And now you're running OpenBSD in the cloud. Uh, but if anything breaks, you do have access to out of band management console so that you can fix it. Mm -hmm. Certainly nice. Now that I know about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, we haven't done beastie bits in a while, but we have now collected a couple of them for you. First one is user games removed from the default path variable in OpenBSD. Uh, that's what Undeadly tells us about. In current, user games has been removed from the default dollar path. Teobula committed the change. Uh, remove games from the default dollar path in etc slash scale. The games are a playground for developers. The code is very old and full of bugs. So when you next sit down on a fresh snapshot install and want to do a quick road rot 13 or Caesar Chiffre or do a round of Tetris, you may need to specify the full path. Alternatively, you could dig into the code and see if you can fix a bug or two. Okay. Yeah, I know uh, FreeBSD basically removed the game's distribution uh, since a lot of it was old and not very useful. Like, uh, Also, half the things that were in there were not really games. Like there was a tool that told you the phases of the moon. It's like, yeah, you didn't need that in the base system. Oh, is GRDC still there? The great red digital clock where it's like floating around the screen telling you the I time of day. <laughs> uh, but FreeBSD moved the couple of things that were useful into the base system and just got rid of the rest of the game's distribution and made it a port instead. Mm. Okay. Uh, then we found in uh, how to that's uh, still valid and relevant today how to install and configure MDNS responder on the FreeBSD forums. And so this thread uh, talks about how to install this and why this is useful. Uh, most po ta posts talk about Avahi, Avahi, I don't know, or NetAtalk, Net, Net Apple Talk implementation. But here uh, they use MDNS Responder, so it's uh, package install MDNS Responder. Then they create the mdnsresponder.conf file, adding the broadcast services for SSH and Samba to it, uh, describing all the contents of each file, uh, of course and then edit rc.conf to enable MDNS responder as well as giving it flags with dash f user local etc MDNS responder the conf file. And then it's sudo service MDNS responder POSIX start and from a Mac on a network you can then use ssh hostname.local to connect or look up for the SMB server in the finder sidebar. If you make any edits to MDNS responder.conf you can restart it to apply the changes with sudo service MDNS responder POSIX restart. Quick and easy and there's a couple of follow-ups from people who are using it in other different ways. So check out the full uh, post on the forums. This next one, I thought the URL would be a complete BSD uh, blog with tips and stuff. Well, it's sleeplessbeastie.eu and I was a bit disappointed that it's mostly talking about Linux stuff, although this one is about FreeBSD. So it's definitely worth checking out the whole uh, blog. There's a couple of good stuff in there. I actually am still going through it. But here, this one I picked is how to use consistent exit codes in shell scripts. So here they ask us to read sysexits uh, FreeBSD's manual page to learn how to use consistent exit codes in shell scripts because should you return zero? Of course, when it's exiting normally, right? But what other error codes are there that you should return to tell other programs, hey, something went wrong? So according to style, the description reads, it is not a good practice to call exit with arbitrary values to indicate a failure condition when ending a program. Instead, the predefined exit codes from sysexits should be used so the caller of the process can get a rough estimate about the failure class without looking up the source code. Of course, the successful exit is always indicated by a status of zero or x underscore OK, like exit OK. 
error numbers begin at ex underscore underscore base to reduce the possibility of clashing with other exit statuses that random programs may already return. And the meaning of the codes is approximately as described as follows. So there's x underscore usage, like you didn't use the program correctly, provide an argument or something. Yeah, bad flag, not enough flags, whatever. Mm -hmm. Then there's x data error, like input data was incorrect in some way. x no input, an input file was not given or doesn't exist. x no user, the user specified did not exist. x no host, the host specified did not exist, like with ping or something. X unavailable, a service is not available. X software, an internal software error has been detected. X OS error, an operating system error has been detected. And then there's X OS file, some file system files does not exist or cannot be opened. Yeah, like a system Ooh. file, like ETC password or something. Ah, yeah, that's part of the operating system, yeah. Uh, and others like can't read, IO error, temporary failure, protocol error, other good ones. And they always provide the error code with it. And so this is how you should write your uh, shell scripts from now on, or at least the return codes. Right. Well, the same follows the C programs too. Like this C, is a, yeah. a .h file you can include so that in your code, instead of putting 68, you can actually put, you know, error, no host. So that, uh, you know, your code becomes more readable when you can use macros for the numbers and that provide some context to the meaning as well. Mm, yeah, that's, that's more readable this way rather than, hey, what's 34 mean? <laughs> All right, and now time for feedback and questions. We have one about ZFS, and uh, we want to get more, not only about ZFS, but different ones. So send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv, and we try to help you or listen to your feedback. Here goes. Uh, the Home writes us uh, this ZFS question here. Good day, mates. Thank you, great podcast. I'm listening to it for years, never been disappointed. Oh, great. That's good uh, feedback, for definitely. Thank you. Uh, I use FreeBSD for decades and seems all FreeBSD questions for which I can't find answers by reading handbook, man page, or quick look to source code are ZFS related. Mm. So I'm just sending questions like that to BSD now. Now, okay, here we go. Here comes my today question. Don't hold back. I have a single ZFS disk pool, which is badly 90% fragmented as I allow it to go 100% full a couple of times. I got bigger drive as replacement and now planning migration. I want it also to fragment uh, while I'm migrating. Okay, you can see three approaches. First, create new pool, new data set, and just copy data across. This would definitely defragment data. The second, create a new pool and ZFS send pipe ZFS receive data across. I believe it should also defragment data. That I know. Mm -hmm. The third is use zpool replace to replace old drive with new bigger one. Is it easiest and fastest way to migrate to new drive? But I'm not sure. Will it defragment the pool? And could you please yeah, confirm my thought about one and two are correct and that three will happen? Is there any other way to defragment the pool? Right. So yes, uh, copying the data or using ZFS send to rewrite the data will defragment it because in both cases you'll put the file back in logical order and write it out fresh uh so yeah one or two will solve the problem three when you do zpool replace it will not defragment the data but if the new drive is bigger it will have a bunch of free space which that free space won't be fragmented and that will cause the fragmentation number to go down some but all the initial data is still fragmented uh so it won't defragment anything but adding more free space will lower the percentage of your space that is fragmented uh, so it, it will look like it has helped but it won't have helped much <laughs> um, so in that case you're probably better off doing the zfs send receive thing but 
um, you know, if you just replace the big disc with, or sorry, the small disc with a bigger disc, uh, the extra free space will reduce the fragmentation and mean that ZFS doesn't have to try so hard to find free space, uh, like big chunks of free space to write new stuff to, because you now have the first chunk of the drive full of all your fragmented data and the second chunk of the drive being all this nice free space. Mm. Uh, so there's no way to do fragmentation on ZFS other than rewriting the files. Um, you can use method one and two within the same pool. So either copy to a new data set or send receive to a new data set on the same pool. And that will defragment the file. It just, it only can help if you have some not already fragmented free space. So if your fragmentation is already 90%, you're kind of in trouble. It means that all the 90% of the free space left on your pool is made up of the smallest possible chunk. Uh, whereas 100% means all of the space is the smallest possible chunk. Uh, when it's not quite that bad, you can reduce the number by recopying all the files so that they're in nice straight lines. And the free space you create, eventually, if you clear it out enough, you'll have big gobs of free space in the old place and you'll be able to balance out. Uh, but yeah, option two is your best option in this case. Uh, and no, you can't defragment a pool nicely, but you can possibly reduce the fragmentation by just send receiving it uh, back to itself a bit. Uh, and you can do this by data yeah. set. You can start with yeah, one and see it how it goes down set. and yeah, don't yeah. have to do it all at uh, once. But you know, if it's too fragmented, that's not going to help or you're going to have to rewrite the data over and over and over again to eventually get slightly more and more and more defragmented. Uh, whereas if you add a bunch of free space, then it can help a lot. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, option three is probably going to be the fastest way to get all your data copied over, but it's not really going to be significantly faster than ZFS send receive. Um, the big advantage is zpool replace is you don't have to stop changing what's on the pool as much, right? If you attach the new drive via zpool replace, it will get, you know, you can continue using your system live and no problems. If you do the send receive thing, you know, that send receive will be of the snapshot you took. Yeah. That might, if it takes a day or two to copy all the data, take another snapshot and do an incremental. And then eventually you can get the window down really small and then you have to just stop changing stuff on the source, do one last incremental and then switch. Hmm. But depending on, you know, your uptime requirements or something, uh, zpool replace might be slightly easier. Uh, but I would recommend your option number two. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have this problem or like a, a lot? Or? Um, I, I usually try to avoid my pools getting that full uh. or if they do get that full, it's of big files. <laughs> and so when I remove a big file, I get back a bunch of space and it's not as big of an issue. Um, or just buy the bigger drive yeah. and do <laughs> the upgrade this way. Yeah, it's just I don't, <laughs> try not to run out of space and you usually don't get that fragmented. Um, like actually, if I just take a quick look. Uh, yeah, like my pool at home is only 16% fragmented and oh, about 65% full. That's okay. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. But again, that's partly because it's not all big files. Uh, there's a bunch of big files and then there's lots and lots of tiny source code files. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, I was talking about before, you know, 20 Git checkouts of FreeBSD and then another dozen of OpenZFS and then, you know, two of the ports tree and so on. And lots of little files too, but uh, most of it comes down to yeah, so the thing to remember is the fragmentation ZFS is talking about here is free space fragmentation. Yeah. Which isn't the same as what you think of when you, uh, you know, the, the old defrag tool on, on DOS and Windows. Oh. That one was about putting a file in logical order. So when you read the file, it would all be sequential. 
That's not what this is talking about. This is just talking about when ZFS needs to write out new data, since it's copy on write all the time, uh, it needs to find a chunk of space that's like, you know, 16 megabytes because you made changes to a bunch of different files and it's going to write out as a big chunk. Uh, and if you don't have 16 megabytes in a row of free space, it has to, you know, find stuff that's about the right size. Yeah. And when your fragmentation or free space levels get too close to full, uh, ZFS has to switch from just finding, oh, there's a big enough chunk, I'll use it, to I'm going to try to find the one that's exactly the right size for this because I don't want to break up a bigger one just because it's faster because we're going to be at a bigger ones. Um, so as you get too close to full or very fragmented, ZFS has to switch what it's doing and it gets a bit slower. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's good to know. But yeah, most times if you uh, if you can manage to get the pool to not be over 80% full, your fragmentation number is probably not going to be so bad that it's a problem. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I usually keep a, an empty data set that I'm not going to use around so that I have still mm -hmm. a bit of things to free up if it gets to that. But usually my monitoring tells me, hey, the, the pool is filling up. Uh, yes. Uh, the other thing I do is I create a data set called reserved with a ref reservation of like 10% of my pool or whatever, mm -hmm. so that that last couple of gigs or terabytes of space can't get used up by accident. Yeah, that's always there to, yeah, to save Yeah, it causes the, uh, the alarms to go off early mm. or whatever. <laughs> yeah, monitor all the things. Okay, uh, hopefully we got into a lot of detail with this and it got uh, answered to your, uh, yeah, to your liking. Definitely send us more ZFS questions, not just you, but anyone else, or any other questions around the BSB, BSD space or stuff that you found on the web that we should cover. We'll be happy to do that if it fits uh, in our show. And definitely thanks for uh, listening to this episode. We'll be returning from EuroBSDCon if this one is scheduled as it's supposed to be. And then we'll have a lot of news from there and people we talk to and stuff that happened there. So we can definitely, we look forward to it and you can look forward to it. And we will report from the conference when we're back. 